a really nice video uh, showing you the detail of building the uh, temple, Solomon's temple. Our apologies, we uh, for whatever reason could not get it. There's, a, there's another picture, architectural uh, drawing and uh, um, of what Solomon's temple looked like and I thought that that would be a good way, uh, a good idea to, to uh, motivate us to kick off a new building project <laughs> at Jericho Ridge. Like, we've got the architectural rendering already there. It's all set up. Uh, the cubits, you know how he was describing everything in cubits? One cubit is actually a foot and a half, so you just got to kind of add a half to everything. And uh, the only problem we might face is the cost factor. Um, if, you, if you heard, oh, land too, um, but, you know, I don't know. We, we, there's an empty parking lot out there. We could... But if you, if you were listening at the very beginning, and, and if we had seen the pictures, you would have noticed that the interior of that building, like the tall part in the back there, the, the front is the courtyard, and then the back is the actual temple, the tall part. And inside that, it was completely overlaid with gold. Uh, all the things that were brought in there, like the candelabras and all that kind of stuff, completely made out of solid gold. Um, so uh, even if we wanted to build... Uh, our own temple, our own church, uh, and use this as our uh, jumping-off point. Um, yeah, might not work in terms of uh, the multi-billions. Literally, uh, I think I read that uh, they estimate that King Solomon used 16 tons of gold alone in the first temple. 16 tons. Think of that. Yeah. I don't think we can relate to that. So what do we do uh, in our series here on wisdom? And uh, we get to the chapters in 1 Kings where Solomon, King Solomon, is building the temple. Like, how do we relate to this? I think to relate to uh, this uh, uh, temple building process, we actually need to zoom out from the details and begin to look at it from a 30,000-foot, so to speak, uh, perspective so that we can begin to see the history of what led to the temple and beyond up to our times. And when we do that, from that vantage point, we begin to see how the, the narrative of Solomon building the temple fits into human and especially our religious pursuit of sacred space. From beginning to where we are now, every generation has pursued, has tried to build, has tried to create sacred space. What is sacred space, you ask? Sacred space is where the divine, where God meets with the human, with us. And ever since Adam and Eve had to leave the Garden of Eden, we've been longing, we've been searching for that sacred space. Every generation does it. We have Christian churches, we have Catholic cathedrals, we have Jewish synagogues, we have Buddhist temples, we have Islamic mosques, we have Hindu ashrams, we had and still can go to Egyptian pyramids. Uh, in our more uh, local context, we have First Nations dance circles, sweat lodges, um, you name it. 
You can go to, into any culture around the world and there will be some representation of what they will call sacred space. And we have Solomon's temple, which is the first of three Jewish temples. If we include uh, the prophet Ezekiel's prophecy that a third temple will be built, is yet to be built. And by the way, Jewish, uh, traditional Jews are still praying three times a day for that temple to be rebuilt. Three times a day. To me, that epitomizes humanity's pursuit and desire and need for sacred space. Three times a day. God, would you rebuild that temple? Why would we do that? Because we have existential questions that we need answers to, and the only place that we think we can find those answers, rightfully so, is in sacred space. We need to find a higher being, power than ourselves. We know it to be God. To answer the questions, who am I? Who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we here? What's important to us? And where are we going? Like, is this it? You and I can sit down over coffee and try to, you know, put our brains together and answer those questions, but we will always come away lacking. I guarantee you, we will always think somebody else, something else knows the answers to those questions. And King Solomon believed, like his, uh, like his father before him, King David, that Yahweh, God, was the one who contained those answers. So who were they? They were God's people. The Israelites were God's nation. They ascended. Where did they come from? They ascended from Adam and Eve that God created in the garden, in his image, Why did they exist? They existed to worship God. They existed to carry out his decrees and his, his laws, his will on earth so that others would know that there was a way to, go, to come to God. What was important to them? It was important to them that they obeyed God above all else. And if they accomplished that, where were they going? They were going to spend eternity in a sacred space called heaven. Until that time, though, there's a chasm between God and them. And so Solomon believed, as did King David, that God needed a place, a permanent place to dwell on earth, to bridge that gap so that they could meet with him. And so King Solomon spends seven years, multi-billions, multi-billions dollars in our currency he enlists resources from around the region. He goes way outside of Israel. He enlists tens of thousands of laborers. He follows God's directions and uh, blueprint to the T and then some. Even to the point of constructing. Ben, can you go back to the, the picture of the temple for me? That entire thing was constructed off-site with tools and then taken apart and reconstructed on-site without any tools to minimize the noise so that there would be no disturbance in the creation of this sacred space. 
if we ever, and I don't know, I'm, I'm the new guy, I'm here, I don't think it's in our plans, but if we ever decide to build, first of all, are we going to pray three times a day? Probably not. Uh, are we going to have the money? No, we already discussed that. No. <laughs> would we go ahead and just so that it would be like so sure that this place would be sacred, build it all off site? I mean, the Schachter's got a, what, a five acre, seven acre apartment. We could build there and then take it all apart. <laughs> wow. Economically, King Solomon leveraged resources. He offered to pay for other regions' uh, grocery bills, so to speak, for years and years after this, if they would send their trees of cedar. He even leveraged off, mortgaged off, 20 towns in Galilee. You give me your cedar trees, and I'll give you 20 towns. How do you like to be living in that town? Why go to such incredible sacrificial ends to build the temple? It says right in 1 Kings chapter 6. Do we have that verse? 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 11. Keep going. There we go. Then the Lord gave this message to Solomon. Concerning this temple that you're building, if you keep all my decrees and regulations and you obey all my commands, notice it's not about building the temple. I will fulfill through you the promise I made to your father David. And here it is. I will live among the Israelites. Oh, sacred space. The gap, the void is being filled and will never abandon my people, Israel. And so in about 957 BC, Solomon completes the work And generations and generations of longing, really since the garden, since Adam and Eve were thrown out, that longing for sacred space, a permanent sacred space, is complete. And God's people have another place to meet with their God. That's why he went to such great lengths. But, not just anyone was allowed to go in and meet with God. It really boiled down to who you were and how well you kept the laws that were uh, instituted for this sacred space. You can see in the picture there that in, uh, so you got the courtyard there on the right side, and then you come in and you've got sort of the big uh, meeting area, and then you've got the back room there, where that's the Holy of Holies, you've got the two cherubim. Those cherubim stand 15, stood 15 feet tall. Their wingspans were 15 feet. So in a room of 30 feet, they went from wall to wall, if you read the, the story. And that last part there, the Holy of Holies, that circle there, that's where God really showed up. But the Israelites weren't allowed to get into that spot, into the Holy of Holies. Um, they had tried, in their mind, that experiment had been tried already. Average Adam and Eve, average Dave and Tammy, average Sheila and Walter in the Garden of Eden didn't work out so good. You just let average Joe walk around and meet with God, what's going to happen? 
Okay, so we're not going to go there. We're going to have the Holy of Holies and only certain people who are like really religious, really righteous, who are really pure, and only at certain times, their appointed times, will be allowed to go in to the Holy of Holies. And that was the Levite priest. So you, first of all, you have to be born into the line of the Levite priests. And then you have to get onto the rotation. And once you're on the rotation, during your rotation, you had to adhere to the strictest of purification laws. I mean, if there was a hint that you weren't, you yourself wouldn't go in because odds are if you went in unclean, you weren't coming out. In other words, this sacred space was deemed so valuable that every precaution is taken to ensure that the Israelites, ironically only through the Levite priests, had a sacred space to meet with God. And that worked for about 370 years until 587 BC when the Israelites no longer held up their end of the covenant of the meeting agreement. Remember in that verse that we read, it wasn't so much about build me a temple. He said, this temple you're building, if you do this, and all those things were relational, keep my decrees, obey my rules. Keep up your end of the agreement, okay? Well, we find out in 587 that they couldn't do that. And uh, Solomon's temple ends up getting destroyed. The Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar II, come. They take the Israelites into captivity. We fast forward from there, 70 years. God releases them, brings them back. And the first thing they set their work to is to rebuild. And we start looking at the second temple. And that second temple is rebuilt uh, when you read in scripture, uh, in the book of Ezra, chapter 3, it talks about it. Some people were really excited, some people not so excited because they didn't put 16 billion or 16 uh, tons of gold in. They didn't have that that time. It wasn't as nice, it wasn't as big, all those. But it was there. And for the next uh, 500 plus years, the temple, the second temple, stands. In fact, Towards the end, it gets to be expanded. King Herod the Great takes on a, a rental project and he expands it. And you would think that when you expand, right? If, if, if we expand our house, that, mean, that's, that must be a sign that things are going well. That things are going good in this uh, agreement between uh, God and his people. But then Jesus of Nazareth appears on the scene and we realize that, no, actually, the temple was doing and looking good on the outside, but it was in major need of a reno on the inside. It wasn't working. People were not meeting with God in the temple. In reality, the sacred space was not functioning as sacred space. It was limited at best. People were being bound by rules and regulations and the Pharisees were hammering down that we've got to keep these decrees because God's, that's the only way God will show up, but God's not showing up. In fact, the time of the prophets has already ceased. He's not even talking through prophets anymore. So we must dig into these laws even deeper. We've got to do this even better. And into that setting, Jesus walks and says, no, it doesn't work. You guys can't hold up your end of the agreement. And so God, God's always the initiator of sacred space. God, the initiator of sacred space, steps into that mess and says, I'm going to send the renovator. I'm going to send the Messiah, Jesus Christ, my son, 
fully human, fully God, fully Jewish, actually came out of the area of Galilee where Solomon took the 20 towns and said, he came from that area in general. And he enters a scene. John chapter 2. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves. We know this story. For sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging for money. Okay? This, is what the, this was the sacred space. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers, coins all over the floor, turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, hey, what are you doing? This is sacred space. This is our place. If God gave you authority to do this, prove it. Show us a miracle as a sign. And Jesus says, all right, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. What? It had taken 46 years to build the second temple. And you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And here comes the pivotal renovation, folks, of sacred space for all time. The Jewish leaders put Jesus to death on the cross and God fulfills the promise and raises up a new temple. God raises up a new sacred space, so to speak, in Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. The Jews thought that they were punishing Jesus for defiling the temple and the Jewish law, but Jesus went to the cross willingly. Jesus went to be the sacrifice willingly for the sin of humanity because it was impossible for God's people to live up to their part of the meeting agreement. It was impossible to live up to their end of the law. And on top of that, it was exclusive to one nation. And God had always intended that all people could meet with him. Everyone should have access to sacred space. So when Jesus dies on the cross, the Gospels tell us that the veil that separated uh, that, that holy of holies and that one little picture there, in the first temple it was actually uh, two bifold doors, two closet doors. But in the second temple it's a veil that separates the holy, that keeps the people out the sinfulness out. And it says that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil gets torn in two as a symbol of the renovation that's taking place. The veil was a separator. Jesus was removing the real separator, which is sin and death. He's removing the barrier between God and humanity. And three days later, yes, the temple is raised. Jesus in, li- in living form, his body is raised to signify that sin has received payment. The separator that was sin has received its payment. Death no longer has any power. There is now freedom to enter into the presence of the living God. And from that moment on, every person has access to sacred space where the human and the divine can meet.
We don't need to go to a temple. We don't need to build one. We don't need to go to the Jewish synagogues. We don't need to go to any building. You guys didn't even need to come here today. I'm thankful you did. There's other good reasons for coming. But you didn't need to come here just to meet with God. Because sacred space is now available to you. Everywhere you go. We don't need a high priest to make sacrifices on our behalf because Jesus said that he was the high priest and his sacrifice was once and for all for all of us. He takes the place of the temple and wherever he is and wherever you meet him, you enter into sacred space. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, our longing, our goal as a church to create sacred space for people to have their longing for sacred space satisfied is the same as it was from the time that Adam and Eve were asked to leave the garden. It's the same as what uh, Abraham and Isaac experienced on the mountaintop. It's the same as what the Israelites, when they were wandering, experienced in the tent called the tabernacle. It was the same thing that Solomon was trying to get at when he built the first temple. Sacred space. All places where the human and the divine meet. And people are still longing for that sacred space in our world. Because we still have the exact same existential questions that every generation since Adam and Eve have had. Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going after this? Do we go anywhere? The human story is the same from generation to generation to generation in terms of its longing for sacred space. Unfortunately, the problem since Adam and Eve is also the same, is that we have this holy God who wants to meet with this people that are not holy and sinful, and it creates distance. And then we can't hold up our end of the bargain of the meeting agreement. I mean, we can do it for a time. We can do one-offs. We can, we can get pretty good at it. It can happen now and then, but somehow our, well, maybe not for you guys, but my sinfulness always gets in the way at some point. And I can't hold up my end of the agreement. And Jesus just walks into the midst of that setting and says, no more. We're not doing the temple thing anymore. We're not going to go that route anymore. There's a better way. He says, I am the new way. I am the temple. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says in Revelation, uh, Ben, you want to bring up that verse? Revelation chapter 3. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in and we will share a meal together as friends? Are you serious? Oh my goodness. Friends, that is sacred space. That's it. Sitting down at a table with God himself and eating? Are you kidding me? Is that possible? I mean, I'm, you guys are here in church, so you are either believers in this God 
that calls himself Jesus Christ. And you've probably had encounters with him. But I don't even know if we're convinced that this is possible. And if we're not convinced, remember Brad from, if there's, what was it, fog? No, there's mist in the pulpit, there's fog. So if there's fog here about this, imagine what the rest of the world is going through. This is stupid. This is foolishness. You can't sit with God at the table and eat a meal together as friends. Imagine the things we could ask him. Imagine the answers for life that we could get. My friend who who Facebook messaged and said, does anybody know a feng shui expert? This happened last week and I back to her. Why? What's going on? What do you need feng shui for? Well, I got all this bad luck happening in my my life right now. My husband lost her job. Some of you got the email on prayer thing. And someone came into their house, a friend, and oh, their bathroom's in the northeast corner of the house. That's bad. You got to get someone in here. You can't have a bathroom in the northeast corner of the house. You got to bring in feng shui and they'll rearrange your house and make sure everything's balanced and do this to try and compensate. That's where all your bad luck's coming from. Really? I texted her back and said, you don't need a feng shui expert. It's not going to change nothing. And she texted me back and said, you're a pastor, right? I said, yeah. Do you want me to pray for you? Would you do that? Question mark. Hey, I can sit down and have a meal with God. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, I go, I go to this church. Can I ask my church friends to pray for you? They'd pray for me too. Yes, we will pray. Because we can sit with Jesus Christ at the table as a friend and say, God, I got another person out there who doesn't even know you exist. Looking for feng shui. You think that you might want to do something in their household? Oh my goodness, people. I can't imagine ignoring that kind of an invitation. To be able to be called a friend of Jesus. To sit at the table with God himself. Maybe open up a really good bottle of Pinot Grigio and say, God. Well, that's what Jesus would drink. Come on. Okay, we're not having this debate, but it is. Summer, nice, cool, refreshing, light and fruity. And just say, hey, what's up with life? I'm having a hard time. Or my friend's having a hard time. Or you know what? Right now I feel lost. I don't know where I'm going. Are you kidding me? Where do we find that sacred space? We find it in the invitation of Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. And that invitation brings together the human and the divine. And when you agree to that invitation, you become a part of the sacred space. This is a weird sort of uh, twist on the renovation. This is a weird finishing uh, for the reno that Jesus is doing. Look at John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Okay, same kind of thing. We're going to have a meal together. For the scriptures declare 
Rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the Holy Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Holy Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. We know that that happens in Acts chapter 2. And then 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Oh, now I've become part of the sacred space. The Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God, you don't belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, so you must honor God with your body because it's sacred space. And so now, instead of King Solomon and the Levite priests going to incredible lengths to ensure that sacred space is possible for people to meet with God in, We've got God himself going to incredible lengths. I'm going to sacrifice myself, my son, so that you can have sacred space. And what's our response? What's our response to that? Ah, thanks, but I'll go to Earl's today, God. Ah, thanks, maybe tomorrow. No, listen to Hebrews chapter 12. What does Paul say? Hebrews chapter 12. Bring it up, Ben. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, because we've got people out there who think that feng shui is the answer or that they need to go to a, a, a medium or a mystic to, to figure out what life is going to look like in the afterworld, or because we've got people out there that think there's nothing out there that has answers to life, We've got that cloud of witnesses around us looking at our life of faith, which is sacred space. So let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up and says, oh, sacred space, you're going to lose it if you keep doing that. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates the sacred space. He perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he's seated in the place of honor beside God's throne, thinking of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you haven't given up your life yet. You haven't gone to that extreme measure yet. In your struggle against sin? Keep going. Next slide, Ben. No, discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Sorry, let me rephrase that. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. We know that. But afterwards, there's a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. A peaceful harvest of right living, sacred space. So take a new grip with your tired hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make out a straight path of right living, back to the first verse, for your feet so that those who are weak and lame will not fall but will become strong. In other words, don't give up. Don't give up on sacred space. Don't listen to the world that says there's no such thing because God doesn't exist. Don't give up on your personal, on your corporate meeting with God. Your life embodies the reality of sacred space. Everywhere you go, your life 
of faith, your life of discipleship, how you interact and meet Jesus in the parking lot, how you meet Jesus in the supermarket, how you meet Jesus in the office, how you meet Jesus in the classroom, how you meet Jesus as you walk up the stairs to the LEC, how you meet Jesus in the bedroom at night with your kid, how you meet Jesus everywhere you go. You embody the meeting of the human and the divine in its sacred space. And thankfully, we don't have to build a temple to invite people to come to. We don't have to ask the king of Lebanon to send us all his cedar and leverage off, you know, like Murrayville and Brookswood and, you know, a few other places, Surrey, that can go and, you know, like. We don't need to spend 16 tons worth of gold. Our lives, your life, but our lives collectively as well as Jericho Ridge Community Church. Us, we embody the sacred space where the divine God meets with his people. It's amazing. It's amazing, friends. All we have to do is believe. Believe in the renovator. Believe in the one who came and said, no more temple stuff, no more laws, no more having to sacrifice for sin. Uh Uh-uh, we're renovating this picture. And all we need to do is invite the Holy Spirit, both personally and corporately as a church, to come and dwell in us. Fill us. Meet with us. And then we need to just honor that meeting. Privately, personally, throughout our days. And we need to do that corporately, together. We need to honor that meeting, that sacred space. It's called discipleship when we do it. And what's our reward? I'll finish with this. The reward is the human and the divine get to meet. And King Solomon says it well in 1 Kings 8 when he goes to uh, dedicate the temple. And I'm going to add my box to the, uh, to the wall. And I'm going to just finish off 1 Kings chapter 8, 54. When Solomon finished making these prayers and petitions to the Lord, he stood up in front of the altar of the Lord where he had been kneeling with his hands raised toward heaven. He stood in a loud voice, blessed the entire congregation of Israel, and this is what he said. Listen, it's not about, listen to the words as I read it. It's not about the $16 billion in gold. It's not about the cedars. It's not about the temple itself. He says, praise the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the wonderful promises he gave through his servant Moses. May the Lord our God be with us as with our ancestors. May he never leave us or abandon us. May he give us the desire to do his will in everything, to obey all his commands and decrees and regulations that he gave to our ancestors. And may these words that I have prayed in the presence of the Lord be before him constantly, day and night, so that the Lord will give us justice as his people Israel, according to each day's needs. Then people all over the earth will know that the Lord alone is God and there is no other. 
And may you be completely faithful to the Lord our God. May you always obey his decrees and commands just as you are doing today. Verse 63, and so the king and all the people of Israel dedicated the temple to the Lord. Verse 65, and then Solomon and all of Israel celebrated. They threw a party for 14 days and celebrated sacred space. The meeting of the divine and human that our world is so desperately longing for, friends. I invite the worship team to come on up. And as they're making their way, we're going to continue in our sacred space together. We're going to celebrate it. And we're going to celebrate it in a way that all of us here now will know beyond any shadow of doubt that God alone is the Lord and there is no other. And we're going to trust that that truth and that wisdom and that knowledge is going to go with us into our week. And no matter who we encounter or, who we, uh, or what situations we come through, whether we've got them planned for the next week or not, that our lives are going to embody this sacred space that says to people, God is the Lord alone. There's no other. You want to meet with him? Jesus renovated that way. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for what you have done throughout humanity, throughout every generation. So evident from Adam and Eve, you just want to meet with us. You created us to meet with you, the living God. And we know that you don't need a temple. You hold the whole world in your hands. You don't need a temple. And yet here you are in our midst because you want to meet with us and you want to answer our questions and you want to give us life and give it to us abundantly so that we can share it and let the rest of the world know. Let all the nations know. Let our neighbors know. Let those in our family who don't know you know. That you alone are God. And there's no other God. There's no other way, no matter what society espouses, to come into sacred space but through your son, Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, thank you that you, you uh, dwell in us. And you turn us into sacred space. Would you, yeah, would you let us celebrate with you? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.